Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Battleground the Falklands. I'm Saul David, and with Patrick Bishop, I'll be talking about the final phase of the battle for Port Stanley. We ended last time with the epic fight on the three mountains surrounding the capital, London, Two Sisters and Harriet, which ended in victory for three para and the Marines of 45 and 42 commandos, all from three commando brigade. They're now exhausted and all have suffered casualties, heavy ones in the case of the paras. The original idea had been that once they'd taken their objectives, they would exploit forward to the next features. But the battles have taken longer than expected, and the night had not been long enough for them to advance further. While they're drawing breath, it's time for Five Brigade advancing along the southern flank to get into the battle, pushing across the low open ground and on to the next objective, Mount Tumbledown. The charge was led by the Scots Guards. They had arrived by ship at Loch Cove unscathed, unlike the poor Welsh guards who were caught in the Sir Galahad air attack. But they were still drying out and sorting themselves out. Communications with brigade headquarters were, as usual, shambolic. Now, according to the plan they'd been handled, they were supposed to advance on Tumbledown on the night of 12th of June. That's uh, immediately after the three brigade battles. It was, of course, vital to keep momentum going, but it was still a big ask. They'd only just arrived, and they needed at least a day to scope out the objective and to shake out, as it's called, that is, to kind of get themselves in fighting order. Their CEO, Mike Scott, tells us now what happened when he discussed things with his commander, Brigadier Tony Wilson. We were very chuffed to be selected to go, uh, somewhat to my surprise, but there we were, and we weren't going to question it. Um, There was a nasty suspicion that we were going to be the garrison troops, when everybody else had won the war. I mean, you know, if you've got the commandos and the paras, who are probably lethally the best shock troops in the world, well, quite clearly they were going to win. Um, And then who was going to look after the Falklands afterwards? And who better than the foot guards? Paint everything blue, red, blue, do double sentry outside government house. Um, However... That was not at the forefront of our minds. We could be doing anything. So we trained as hard as we could, uh, as if our lives depended on it, which, of course, they did. So that was fine. Okay, let's fast forward to the uh, events after you arrive at Bluff Cove. Yeah. Uh, When did you first hear about your objective? Uh, 7th of June, I was summoned to Brigade Headquarters. And the brigadier gave us a plan. And I stress it was a plan. It wasn't an order. And people later said, oh, Mike, you disobeyed your orders. It didn't. It was a plan. 
And the plan was for us to advance to contact, in the old, the old military expression, uh, on the track leading from west to east into Stanley in daylight. And if Tumbledown hadn't been taken by the Gurkhas, by patrolling, whatever that I meant, we were to wheel left and attack Tumbledown uphill uh, in the daylight. Um, I didn't say to the brigadier at the time, I don't think this is a good idea, but I went back to my nearest and dearest, my company commanders, my operations officer, um, my machine gun officer and so on, and I said, this is, this is the plan. And they were absolutely horrified. Uh, our patrols had found a minefield across the obvious track, and the Argentinians have read the same books as us. A minefield is going to be covered with fire. Any obstacle has to be covered with fire. So the likelihood would be that they would have some ground troops the other side of the minefield, plus they would have direct fire from Tommeldown with the heavy machine guns, and, of course, mortars and artillery would have registered targets. And I said to uh, the sapper troop commander who I had with me, very good, very good bloke, um, how long will it take to get the battalion through the minefield? And he said, all night. So we would have appeared the far side of the minefield in daylight under all sorts of um, aggravation from the Argentinians. Anyway, I said to, to, I said to my cronies, it's no good me going back to the brigadier saying we're not for it. I've got to go back to him and say, with the greatest respect, sir, we've got another idea. So they put together the idea. It wasn't my idea. I, I don't have any original thought, but my job was to persuade the brigadier. And the much better idea was for us to assault Tumbledown from the west at night from the safety of the commanders on Harriet and, and two sisters. And meanwhile, at the same time, put in a diversionary attack with some 30 men under Richard Bethel uh, on the track into Stanley uh, to make the Argentinians think, obviously, that that was the way we were going to come, very obvious to them. And I went then back to the brigadier, um, slightly in trepidation, because brigadiers can easily say to commanding officers, do what you're told, or I'll get somebody else. Anyway, he agreed with alacrity. I was then summoned on the 12th of June, about the middle of the afternoon, uh, down to an air group with, with the brigadier. And he said to me, Mike, tonight's the night. And I got a sinking feeling that this is what was going to happen. At that stage, I knew from my gunner that the uh, 105 guns had basically run out of ammunition because they'd been supporting the uh, commando attacks on Harriet and so on, and they needed to be replenished. Uh, there was no way they had enough ammunition to support us. And I said to the brigadier, could we have 24-hour delay? A, to replenish the guns... And B, I can, I've still got time. There were about two hours of light left. I can go back, get my company commanders, and they can get their platoon commanders up to the saddle 
between Harriet and Goat Ridge, and we can see Tumbledown, and we can see to a certain extent our objectives, certainly uh, the, first, the first phase, G Company's objective, we could easily see, and then a bit of left flank, not the last company through. But anyway, we could see the, we could see the mountain. And uh, we would then be neatly prepared. We would then have the day to sort ourselves out and attack that night, which was the 13th. I knew that the commandos and the paras who were freezing on their mountains would be exceptionally miffed. That's, that's a polite word of saying it. Uh, and so did the brigadier. And he must have known that the, the general would not like it very much either. Who were these idle guardsmen sitting around? But he agreed immediately. And so I then was able to whiz back, get hold of the company commanders. Up we went to the... We flew up to the saddle, chatted to the marine commandos um, and on uh, Harriet and, and Goat Ridge, and we could look over, and then they had time to bring up their um, platoon commanders and do the same with them. So we were all content, very happy, uh, got ourselves sorted out, laid out how we were going to uh, our formation to attack that night, um, have a bit of food, make sure our ammunition was right up to scratch, and get ourselves really nicely, nicely balanced. So tell us about the attack. Um, the attack went very well to start off with. Uh, G Company, who was the leading company, got onto their uh, position almost without a shot being fired, to, to our immense surprise, because I had marked on my map um, Argentinian heavy machine guns on their position. Uh, and then Le Flanc took over and uh, came up against very, very stiff opposition. And it was a very long night at that stage. One of the things which uh, was brilliant was our radio communications. You know, we always complain about how we lose touch. And I wasn't in touch with the diversionary attack because they were basically shielded by uh, Mount Harriet. But Richard Bethel got on with it, who was a highly, highly competent ex-SAS officer. Um, but I could talk to my company commanders just like I'm talking to you now. And when they were rustling around, I could, I could talk to their signalers who I knew. Um, for instance, John Kisley's signal, Lance, Lance Corporal Murley. And I could talk to him like I'm talking to you now. Um, we were held up then. And another problem was there was a rogue gun. I think that's what the artillery call it uh, there was one gun which they didn't know where it was firing so they had to stop each gun and fire it individually and the forward observation officer with uh, John Kisley then had to say where the round was landing and of course this is, this is again what the gunners call danger close it's not a thing they're ever allowed to practice on, on training because it's right up as close as possible and it was very good the other great advantage was the naval gunfire support, which is incredibly accurate. If you're, if you're a very ordinary uh, O-level science person like me, how a ship which is floating about can fire so accurately, it was absolutely amazing. But of course, I didn't know anything about that. I mean, if you served in 
Germany and Northern Ireland, you don't actually have too much to do with naval gunfire support. But they were brilliant, and that helped. But, of course, they ran out of rounds at about one o'clock in the morning and pushed off. So there we were. But left flank did an incredible amount, and, and really the whole hinge of the success of the Battle of Tumbledown rested on John Kisley's shoulders. Remarkable. Um, and then about three or four in the morning, uh, he'd pretty well cracked his bit and right flank with Simon Price in command then took over and pretty well polished it off by daylight. I was well to the rear um, but what I could do, rather than charging around in the dark when nobody would see me anyway, what I could do is, is, as I say, talk to them on the radio and encourage them and basically look after them on the radio. Um, and that seemed to work. Nick, Nick Vorps, who listened to our uh, transmissions, was very complimentary about it afterwards. <laughs> Um, not the sort of tone of voice they use in the, in the, in the command days. But um, so there it was. And so, so by. Say something a bit more about that, about how the difference in style. Uh, yeah, he puts it, he says it sounded rather like as though people had just stepped out of the royal enclosure at Ascot or something like that. <laughs> well, that was Mike Scott. And it's good to hear, I think, him putting a point in favour of Tony Wilson since. Wilson's come in from quite a lot of stick, both then and since, and during the podcast itself. And it's interesting that Wilson agrees very sensibly and very quickly to that crucial 24-hour delay, and also the decision to launch the attack at night and not in daytime. You know, Mike Scott certainly thought that they were being sent down to the Falklands as a garrison force, but nonetheless doesn't take that for granted, decides they're going to as he puts it, train as if their lives depended on it, which, of course, it, as it turned out, it would. And the battle that followed was really a huge test of any troops, be they elite forces, like the powers and the commandos, or regular is not quite the right word, but uh, troops whose, whose physical fitness is not as of paramount importance as it is for the other, for the powers and the commandos. But they equip themselves incredibly well. And I think... Partly it's their innate qualities as soldiers, but it's also got a hell of a lot, as Mike says, to do with the morale of the ethos of the unit. Yeah, and you can see again from, you know, he he makes the point, doesn't he? This very close bond, unusual in some senses, bond between the upper class officers, landed gentry. I mean, my first book was about the Highland Division, and you very much had the same thing in 1940, where they would come from the landed classes, and their men were just ordinary blokes, working class blokes from cities. And yet, by leading by example, they were able to gain the trust and the cooperation of their men in crucial battles like this. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, illustrated by the casualty figures, eight killed and 40 wounded on Tumbledown. And of those casualties, for 50%, were officers, warrant officers, and NCOs. So once again, we see this picture of a battle where decisions are being taken at a very low level. Battle-winning choices are made by young men with no huge experience, and they get the right ones. So at the end of it, the Scots Guards have done five brigade, proud they've done themselves proud. They've added another illustrious victory to their list of battle honours. Yeah, and one name that's not mentioned, but any of the listeners who were around uh, at the time and remember the BBC documentary Tumbledown, that name is Robert Lawrence. And Robert Lawrence was a young platoon commander who actually in an interview very recently described 
going in with the bayonet himself, the bayonet breaking off in a trench when he's attacking an Argentinian and him using the broken bayonet to dispatch the Argentinian. I mean, it's pretty grim stuff, but it absolutely illustrates that the platoon commanders were right up there at the point of the battle, leading their men. Yeah, cold steel. I think that's the last time we'll ever hear that phrase used in connection with it. British Army battle. You should never say never, of course, in warfare, but it does have a very sort of primitive, atavistic feel to it. One of the commanders that covered which flank he was on, but anyway, John Kisley dispatched three Argentinians, one of them with the bayonet. He went on to become a lieutenant general. He's rather a sort of scholarly, distinguished figure. And when one sees him, it's quite hard to put him in those circumstances. Now, another unit that added to their battle honours that night was the Blues and Royals, equipped with Scorpion and Scimitar armoured cars. Jeremy Thompson regretted not using them at Goose Green, and during the Battle for Mount Tumbledown, a troop of Blues and Royals, commanded by 23-year-old 2nd Lieutenant Mark Corrath, played a key role. I was tasked to do a diversion attack below Mount Harris um, and Mount Tumbledown um, for the Scots Guards um, on that night of the 13th. I was going with Richard Bethel, Major Richard Bethel, who had a, effectively a platoon of headquarter company platoons. They, weren't a, they were cooks and bottle washers, effectively. Mm-hmm. But we were going to make a diversion attack below, on the, along the road below Tumbledown, an hour or so before Scots Guards were to go up over the high ground. A diversionary attack is always a dodgy thing, because we're doing exactly what the enemy assumed we were doing. There is that one metal road which I mentioned between Bluff Cove, so I'm looking off to the left, I've got a wonderful map, which, I, which you may or may not have, but anyway, there's a metal road going from Bluff Cove to Stanley. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Bethel and I made a foot recce forward onto some rising ground, looking down that road, um, onto a company of, of Argentine Marines. And they were well dug in just south of the road. And quite plainly, that was an axis they expected us to take. Therefore, as we discovered previously, their, their, their artillery was very good with their directed, with their DS. So that high ground that we were on, which we had to get over, was almost inevitably going to be a DF and a big one. And I could look down and see the mine boxes were all over the place beside the road, but empty, their lids were off. So that everywhere around there, I could only assume, was a minefield. And so my aim, therefore, was to lead from the front, because I knew exactly where we, I needed to go, and really sort of use speed to get over that ridge down where the road bent slightly off to the left, I could then do effectively a broadside onto the enemy company position, fire Richard Bessel's chaps in, and then direct the fire onto Mount William beyond and make it clear that we were heading towards Stanley. And that was the axis of the attack. What actually happened because nothing quite happens as planned in war. When we came to cross the start line, um, I got onto that high ground, and the day, uh, the night turned to day with star shells absolutely everywhere. But along with those star shells came very, very accurate 155, 105 artillery, and landing on our position, like 
two or three yards either side of the vehicles. I mean, it's just extraordinarily accurate and very, very heavy fire. Luckily, predominantly hit, it went into the peat, and so that absorbed the, the, the blast. But coming up to that rise, on the top of the rise, I found there was a whacking great crater in the middle of the road. And so I slammed on the anchors and had a quick scratch of my helmet and think as to what to do, because it was either a 155 round, which it could well have been, or it was a blown, cul- a blown culvert. If it was a blown culvert, it was inevitable that it was going to be mined either side. But I was pointing directly at the enemy at this time, at this point, and I needed to get further down to give that broadside effect that I wanted to achieve. So I remember just telling my gunner and driver to batten down the hatches and left stick, um, and we went about three or four metres um, into the rubble um, when I hit a anti-tank mine, and we were blown sort of four or five feet into the air. We got away with it, none of us, and I called to the two crewmen, and they were both fine. Fine is the wrong word. They were distinctly rattled, but they were alive. So I got them onto the vehicle, walked them down the tracks, and told them to just get the hell out of it. Just disappear down the road out of the artillery, out of the artillery bombardment. Um, and I then brought the other vehicles up, one at a time, to where I could direct them to fire on the enemy position and just to climb on the side of the vehicle and order fire orders and when the shells came in I just jumped into a ditch thank you it was a very handy ditch but it was thinking back it was just bloody dangerous is the truth of it and um, thank God for adrenaline really but anyway we fired onto the positions until I reckoned that it was possible that the Major Battle and his lot could be getting close to the company position when I directed the fire into William. And so, yes, it was a very successful attack. Unfortunately, Richard Bessel lost a couple of men there. Um, they got in and amongst the company position. Then when withdrawing, had a couple of people hurt with anti-personnel mines. So it was sad in that respect, because otherwise it was, I think, an extremely successful diversionary attack. Well, that was stirring stuff from Mark Corrath, who went on to say that the Blues and Rolls had earlier done good work in an anti-aircraft role at Bluff Cove, shooting down at least one Pekara aircraft and helping to ferry casualties to hospital. Anyway, in part two, we're going to be looking at the final battle of the war, as it turned out, the action on Wireless Ridge, which looks down directly over Stanley from the north and this is where two power went into action for the second time. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com.
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Now, while the Scots Guards were hard at it on Tumbledown, two para were assaulting the Argentine positions on Wireless Ridge. Now, this is the high ground that looks south across Stanley Harbour to the capital. This is the second battle, of course, that two para have fought. The first was at Goose Green, where their CO, H. Jones, was killed. And they're now under the command of David Chandler, who was flying a desk at the Ministry of Defence in London when the war broke out. So instead of allowing the highly competent second-in-command, Chris Keeble, who really had taken control of the Battle of Goose Green after Colonel H. was killed, gripped it, as they would say, in military parlance, and then got on to win it handsomely. Instead of giving him the command, the decision was made to insert Chandler to take over in the most dramatic fashion imaginable. He was flown by a C-130 Hercules from Ascension to the skies over the Falklands, a journey that took 18 hours due to the atrocious weather and required two in-flight refuelings. He then jumped out of the aircraft, parachuted into the sea, in the hope that he'd be picked up by a small boat which had been sent out from one of the destroyers. Incredibly, the plan actually worked out and he was picked up, taken ashore and sent to take over. What I love about that story, Patrick, is apparently it's the first time Chandler had ever parachuted into the sea and he did this in the freezing cold South Atlantic. I mean, it was fraught with danger, almost courting disaster. But as you say, he got away with it. Now, when he actually arrived in the Falcons, there were no complaints about his leadership. Here's Julian Thompson's assessment of his handling of the battle. I laid out the axis of advance to avoid Stanley, in theory. So I said, you know, you're going to go that way, you're going to go that way. I knew bloody well that if they open up on us from Stanley, we'd have to go and fight there. I mean, after all, the Argentines hid their 155 guns in Stanley. They hid a lot of their kit in Stanley. I don't think there was any compunction about fighting in Stanley. They decided to. And we'd have had to fought them back. So... It would have been a disaster had we had to fight in Stanley, killing all the people we'd come to rescue. And, of course, this was a combined attack by five brigade on Tumbledown and my brigade, two para, on Wireless Ridge. It's coming in a pincer attack, really, Wireless Ridge from the north and Tumbledown coming in from the west. And the battle on Wireless Ridge was a textbook battle, brilliantly fought by two para, they had plenty of fire support. They had two ships in support, i.e. the equivalent of two batteries, plus two batteries of 105s, 
plus their own mortars, plus three paras mortars and machine gun platoon. And they also had the advantage of using the CVRT, the light tanks, which you couldn't have used on the other features because they were too rough. But here, the Wise Ridge is sort of rolling country, not as steep as the other places. And uh, David Chandler fought a beautifully coordinated battle, which was interrupted, I have to say, or nearly interrupted, by a call for help by the SAS, who decided to have a sort of last-minute free-for-all attacking some oil tanks in Stanley. Why you want to attack an oil tanker? You're about to take capture anyway. I have no idea. And they were joined by the SBS in this last hurrah and the raiding squadron, who were then fired on by a gun mounted on a hospital ship, believe it or not, causing a lot of casualties. And so they asked for help. And I went back into my CP, having been out for a minute, to see my or hear my chief of staff talking to the SASNO, saying, bloody special forces, you think the whole world's got to stop for you until you will go to your rescue when we can, which won't be right now. So I wasn't going to order two paras to stop going that way and go off into the blue at night to find some chaps who'd been wounded some five or 6,000 metres away. I mean, it would be an absolute tailor made from blue on blue. So it was a diversion, but a slightly unwelcome one. Julian Thompson there giving once again a slightly lukewarm tribute to the performance of the Special Forces. Yes, you very much get a sense that for Thompson in particular, he's not highly appreciative of the SAS's determination to get involved whenever they can. In fact, he describes it as an unwelcome distraction rather than the key part of the plan. And I think we can see a bit of a trend here with the SAS. Of course, they do some pretty credible things on the island, Pebble Island, the destruction of planes there, which we've discussed earlier, and one or two other things. But they also get them into a bit of trouble. And this is another good example of that. Of course, it's interesting that the SBS are also involved in this, and it goes horribly wrong for both groups. Yeah, for all the kind of cerebral qualities that the SAS are meant to possess, there is a sort of tendency to, when in doubt, uh, blow something up or shoot something without actually thinking through whether this is of any great value to the overall military effort. And I think we see a little bit of that there. Uh, there's also, I mean, the criticism of the SAS, I think, is also something to do with the place they hold in the public's imagination. I was at this gathering, which I've mentioned before, down at Plymouth 4-2 Commando to commemorate the victory on uh, Mount Harriet a little while ago. And people were making some rather sceptical remarks about the SAS there. But I think it's not so much what they achieve. It's this sort of slightly contradictory stance they have, pretending to be tremendously secretive, while at the same time managing to hoover up vast amounts of publicity. Yeah, I mean, this very much is something that you got from the Second World War. It's interesting. There's been a new biography of the founder of the SAS, David Sterling, which pretty much takes him down, says he was a great one other people's thunder. Uh, Paddy Mayne was the real heart of the original operations, was the key to a lot of the early success. And after Mayne's death, Sterling pretty much steals a lot of the credit. And you just wonder if the ethos that was begun by Sterling has somehow seeped at least into some of the modern SAS. Yeah, it's interesting. It's with Gavin Mortimer, who's the author of this book, and he's quite a bold thing to do to take on this iconic figure. But I think his approach is pretty fair. I would even actually take a little bit of issue about Paddy May. Paddy May was an amazing soldier, but I think he was also, I, I think in other circumstances, he might well be classified as associate. But uh, certainly peacetime did him no favours. He just couldn't exist in a, a 
peaceful, tranquil situation. He was a very dangerous man, both to the enemy, but also to those around him. So there's something very theatrical about the SAS from the outset, and something slightly suspect about the motivations, I think, of the founding fathers, and in particular the case of Sterling, who by all accounts was a pretty hopeless regular soldier. And war brings great opportunities, so it becomes a sort of playground for people like him. Some of them turn it into a great success, as he did in terms of reputation. Uh, Others go awry, end up dead or disgraced. Yeah. Now, one other thing we should mention to give the SAS some credit, actually, is their role in trying to prevent a civilian massacre in Stanley. I mean, the real fear of the military commanders, we've already heard Julian Thompson mention it, is that the fighting would have actually gone on into Stanley if the Argentines had kept fighting right to the end. And so to try and prevent this, to give him his due, Mike Rose, the CO of 22 SAS in the Falklands, and Rod Bell, the Spanish-speaking Royal Marine officer, managed to get onto the open radio link to someone called Alison Blini, who was working in the hospital in Stanley, and through her urged the Argentinians, who they know are listening in, to spare the civilians. But thus far, of course, there's been no response from the Argentinians. It was very easy, actually, looking down on Stanley at these flimsy buildings to imagine all sorts of horrors if the Argentinians didn't see sense and do the decent thing. You could very easily picture a scene where the civilians trying to flee in the middle of a battle with horrendous consequences. So really a great concern, live concern at that time. Okay, we've had the overview of the battle from Julian Thompson. We're now going to hear uh, from the ground up from someone we've heard from before, Spud Ely. He gave us an incredibly graphic account of Goose Green. And now he tells us of his memories that night of the attack on Wireless Ridge by graphically describing the effect the massive fire support Tupara had on the defenders. Well, Wireless Ridge was a second battle Tupara fought. It was only a battalion that actually fought two battles in that war. C Company's objective was a small pimple to the left of Wireless Ridge. Wireless Ridge was generally taken by D Company Tupara. But mine was a small pimple. The SES were meant to put an attack in, which they did, across the bay by Stanley to take away our attack so they would alert another position. But this little pimple, we got up the top, fixed bayonets, and you could hear the Argentinian voices again on top, and I thought, oh, my God, we're not going to survive this. It's just absolutely crazy. We got up there, and to hear the last of the Argentinians run off. Come first light, we then traversed across Wireless Ridge, D Company had basically taken it. We had full support by them. We had scimitars and scorpions giving covering fire. So it was a typical attack on a fixed mountainous location. And they bombarded it. They 105 packed howitzers, softened up the target. And what I remember is seeing the dead bodies of the Argies. There was one that had been cut by this sliver of rock, this sliver of granite, I think it was, something similar, something hard and sharp, about 30 foot long this was. This round had completely split it and cut this poor Argy in half and his torso was just cut clean like you would do you know a surgical knife there was bits of bodies all over the ridge not many survived first like we saw them running down towards moody brook uh, so we took the odd pot shot yes we did yeah can't deny that because you don't know if they're going to go down there and regroup that's the point which people don't understand they could be running away but they could be running away get down into cover and then you know start an attack again or regroup 
I think that's a fair point. Don't you, Saul? Okay, the enemy's running away, but he could very easily turn around and counterattack. Yes, I do think it is. And it, it reminds me, interestingly enough, of some of the stuff that was going on in the Pacific in the Second World War. I've just written a book about the Marines, that is the US Marines fighting there. And you see again and again this situation. They take a feature, the enemy, in this case, the Japanese retreating, and they're taking pot shots at them as they go. You know, it's justified, but there's also an element, I think, where it almost becomes a bit of sport. You get enormous numbers of Marines, in the case of the Pacific, actually firing at a single guy just trying to get back to his lines. And there's one infamous incident where an officer comes up and tries to put a stop to all of this, thinks it's, you know, really out of order. And he's almost fragged, that is, US parlance for taken out by his own men because they're so furious that he's literally stopping their sport. Yeah. In another theatre, thinking about the strategic bombing campaign in Europe, uh, led by the RAF and supported by the Americans, when I was researching Dresden, and trying to work out how it came to occupy this place as a sort of semi-war crime in the eyes of some art of the war committed by the Allies, I uh, counter this argument that why did we go and attack this city when the war is almost over, the end is in sight? And to which the answer is, well, of course, that's how it looks now, but it was certainly not the case then. The Germans were fighting uh, with the same determination they showed when they were attacking in, in defence. They were just as fierce, just as ruthless. All this uh, pointless expenditure of life you see in the ground war. And so nothing could be taken for granted. So for me, that's not really a valid argument at all, either at a practical or at a moral level. Yes. And I think in this specific case of, of two para Nigel Ely's comment about shooting at guys withdrawing, well, if they happens. Of course, he's absolutely right. There is a chance that they're going to regroup and start fighting again. And we should also remember that these are the paras, the paras and the marines. They are toughest assault troops. They are trained to be aggressive. They had it drummed into them. You keep going, you keep momentum going. This in their minds would have just simply been the same part of of that equation. You keep going until the campaign is over. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Uh, Join us next time to find out how Julian Thompson got his fish and avoided a street battle to take Fort Stanley.